about that is the fact that God sees everything. That nothing is darkness to Him. And that is what we will be talking of this, this morning. I'm going to read to us from the book of Daniel. This is in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel, there's many things we know about Daniel. His most famous, of course, being his uh, conflict with the kings. Uh, but there was a greater conflict going on, and that was the conflict of the spiritual realm. And the prophet Jeremiah came just before Daniel. They overlapped a little bit. And Jeremiah had written of the captivity of Israel, the fact that they were going to be taken into Babylon for 70 years. And that at that time, at the 70 years, God was going to relent from His discipline and He was going to send His people back. And so Daniel, I don't know how good he was at math, but he was actually probably pretty good. He was one of the high ups in the government. Um, depends on how you feel about the government. But I think he was a good government official, so I think he probably could do math. But he added up the years and he said, you know, this is when we were taken. It's time. The 70 years are up. And so he prays. And so I'm going to read from Daniel chapter 9 a, a fairly large portion um, So Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer, and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from Your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings and our princes and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. For we rebelled against you, have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in all His laws, which He set before us by His servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. Being ahead to verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord God, hear. O Lord God, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Do not delay 
for your own sake, O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Let's ask for the Lord's help this morning. Father, we need you. We need your mercy and grace today, just as the people of Israel needed your mercy and grace thousands of years ago. We pray that you'd give it to us this morning in the reading and preaching and hearing of your word. Thank you, Father. Amen. There are many, many things that could be said about the fact that God sees us. Over the course of the last couple of weeks, I tried to lay a foundation of what that should do to us, to realize that God is the maker of everything, light and darkness. He is the one who opens the eyes of the blind. And He is the one who lights the path, and we cannot find it. And that is terrifying. And there really is no other word for it. In fact, it over and over in Scripture is called the fear of the Lord for that reason. And this is... If we are devoid of a knowledge of God in ourselves, we have nothing to fear. But the moment we begin to understand who He is, His holiness, and that He cannot, he cannot dwell with sin, and then the fact that we are full of the thing He cannot dwell with, we are afraid. He is a consuming fire. And this is not good. Um, one of the problems we have in evangelicalism, so that would be the broad term for all the churches that generally believe the Bible and the gospel. So everyone, everywhere that this morning is attempting to preach the gospel, is we have this very cushy idea that we should expect and assume God to just kind of overlook everything that happened this past week and pat us on the head and send us on our way as though that is what He owes us. And what happens with that is we become very self-unaware of who we actually are. If you take a moment and think about something that is similar to, but not the same as, how many of you know what the ants are doing today? under your house and in your yard? Have you went, huh? You have no clue. No clue. I don't know. I don't know where they're at right now. I don't even know if ants hibernate. I don't know what happens to them. I don't care. They're completely out of my mind. When is the only time you care about ants? When they get in your house. And if you're a kid, if you're out playing with the ants. And that's it. Once you grow up out of kidhood, you stop caring about ants. And when you get to be an adult, the only time you care about an ant is when he is in your kitchen in your butter dish. That is it. We are enormously more strong, powerful, knowledgeable, superior in every possible way than the ant. And we do not care one lick about what he does day to day, if he lives, if he dies, how many. They do not cross our minds and I could name a thousand species, if I could name a thousand species, that you also don't care about, don't know about, don't think about, could give two licks about. Even Rick, who knows a billion things about birds, 
doesn't know what most of them are actually doing. Because Rick cares about people more than he cares about birds. And so he knows what people are doing more than he knows about what birds are doing. We are the same with a thousand things. A thousand things. Now, think for a moment about the God, the maker of heaven and earth and all that is in it. And how unbelievably minuscule you and I are. We're less than an ant to God in comparison to who He is. He made light. A hundred years ago, we had just figured out how fast light goes. We had been on the earth for thousands of years, and we just went, I think we figured out how fast it is. And we still know almost nothing about it. Almost nothing about it. God said, let there be light. And there was light. We need to come to grips with the fact that it is an unbelievable reality that God not only is aware of us, but He sees us and He cares for us. Even if you knew a bunch about ants today, let's say you were an ant expert, you studied ants and it was your doctoral thesis and you know all there is to know about ants, which are fascinating creatures. They think, by the way, I have studied a little bit about ants because I'm that sort of weird person that likes to know things. They think that there is one basically giant ant colony. So they do these experiments where they pick up ants in Asia and they drop them off in the Midwest and see if the ants in the Midwest and the ants from Asia get along or if they try and fight. And lo and behold, they don't fight. They're like, oh, hey, cousin, nice to see you. Come on into our tribe. They estimate the number of ants and how much they weigh. They think they weigh more than the humans on the earth. That's kind of creepy to think about. Okay? Now, even if I knew a thousand more things about ants and could boggle your mind with ant facts for days, I could have thousands of conferences a year and know more than any human being ever about an ant. Do I know a single one of their names? And even if I do, let's say I know a hundred ants by sight, there are billions more that I've never met, seen, or know anything about, nor do I care about. Have we considered the fact that there are eight billion people currently living on this earth, and the God of heaven not only knows it, in an abstract, I know what a human is, I know what he looks like, I know how his eyes work, I can describe his biology, I know how he reproduces. No, no, no. God sees us. And we walk around like that's an expected thing. Like, oh yeah, well, of course. (laughs) That's unbelievably mind-boggling. God ought not to care one lick about us. If you just examine it from a completely secular... God is an infinite relational being completely satisfied within Himself, has no need of us. Scripture literally says it. He does not need us. He was happy before the worlds began. Completely, totally, 100%. Lacking nothing. 
that God, maker of light, shower of paths, that God is who we're talking about. And so if we can get to a point where we think, oh, you mean it's not expected that he would know us, that's a good place. This is, for instance, um, the prayer of Solomon at the dedication of the temple. He says this, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Do we very often think, if we're honest, God should not know us even a little bit? We are a town of 17,000 people. Some of you may know this little boy who died, or the teacher, or her daughter's or the families, but most of us don't, even if we've lived here our whole lives. And the same is true about all the other people that I didn't mention who died this week. Becker Kleesner Funeral Home does about 320 funerals a year. How many of them did you know? We, we tend to have this concept that God ought to just know me. I'm so special. I am unique among all the birds. But if we step back for a moment, it's an impossibly amazing thing that God knows us at all. And He knows us intimately. Intimately. Right? The psalmist in Psalm 139. You know my rising up and my lying down. You know a word before it ever comes to my lips. That's intimate knowledge. That's far more intimate than your spouse. It's far more intimate than your children, your parents. We can have suspicion of what you might have said, but often we're wrong. Right? You were going to say, well, no, I wasn't. Sometimes we lie. No, it wasn't, even though we were going to say that thing. God doesn't have to guess. God knows. Now think about the reality of that fact. So if we get over the fact that he shouldn't know us at all, we are like the ants beneath the ground, and he should not care two licks about us, and yet he does. Now we're getting into this secondary problem of he actually does. And what is there for God to see? To know. Is it all just roses? Do you actually want Him, if you think about it, to see everything you have thought, said, and done this week if you are actually honest with yourself? When you had that fight with your family over Christmas, do you want God to know the things you thought about your siblings? Do you? Or your spouse? Or a mechanic? Or the greeter at Walmart who you didn't say hello to? Do you want God to see it? Do you? I don't. 
I do not want the God of the universe who can snuff me out like that to know very much about me. I put on a polished front when I talk to you, when I talk to my wife, when I talk to my kids, when I am anywhere. The real stuff that goes on in our hearts that no one sees, and I can't see, you can't see. Let's be honest for a moment. Do you want God to see it? Do you want the God of the universe to peer into what you think of the decision your child made? And whether you think they're a fool or not at 35. Do you, do you want God to see that? Or, let's take it again into realms maybe more palatable in some ways. We speak a lot of things that probably shouldn't be spoken about the men and women who run this country as politicians. And God sees and hears every one of those things. Do you want Him to see the things you think that you haven't said about President Biden or President Trump or President Obama or President Bush or President Clinton or President Bush or President Reagan. Those are my presidents. You could keep going if you're older than me. That's where I stop because I was never under anyone else. Do you want God to see the things you think? Or how about the news commentator that says X, Y, or Z? How about the news that you find out about the horrible, wicked things that are going on in our world and in our community and the things you think about the people who did them. For instance, the drag shows that are becoming popular amongst five-year-olds and how they're being promoted, like the one in Bloomington that happened, is happening today. And you find out, and do you want God to see the thoughts that you have? Do you? Were they full of love and grace and purpose and light? Or were they not? And if we're honest, oftentimes they are not. So let's start there. God sees even though He ought not to in any really feasible way see. And he, when He sees, He sees. And yet... And yet, He does not utterly consume us. Even the wicked. How does that work? I don't know. Except this, God has said, My name is the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquities. How unbelievable is that news to you? When we talk about what it means for God to see us, we often just go immediately to the, He sees our needs and He will help us. But He sees everything about us. And He does it anyway. Think about these sorts of things. So, if you didn't know much about the history of God's people, you'll know that at one time, they asked for a king. And they did not do so with a pure heart at all. They actually rejected God. They said, give us a king. And Samuel says, uh, that's not a good idea. And God says, 
don't worry, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They have rejected me. So this is the context. Let's set this up. This is the context of this. They cry out to God and say, I don't want you as my king. Give me a real man I can see. What should God do? How should he respond? Because he knows exactly what's in their hearts and how much they have rejected him really, truly, personally. Every individual who wants a king rejecting God. He knows. He sees. And then later he says to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall appoint him, anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. And he shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. All right, context. Utter, total, complete rebellion. And in the midst of that rebellion, they were saying, give us a king, give us a king. And God says, okay, I will give them a king. And not only will I give them a king, he will save them. That is staggering. What would we do if we were in the place of Samuel, if we were in the place of God? Would we go, oh, yeah, that's reasonable. You hate me and reject me. We would just walk away from the situation. We would not stay. It's toxic. Get out. Not going to have it. Turn the, turn the channel. Move on. Find different people. God doesn't. And this is not an isolated incident. This is the story of the people of God. God saves, they reject. God saves, they reject. God says, we're done. And someone intercedes for God's people and says, do not consume us. You made a promise to save us. Notice, it's not some sort of demand like, oh, God, save me. I've got nothing They've got nothing. We actually deserve wrath. But you said you would save us. That's a different kind of prayer, right? That's the same kind of prayer that Daniel prayed. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from the city. O my God, incline your ear, open your eyes, and see our desolations because of your righteousness not because of our righteousness. God's people call to Him and He answers and they call to Him always in the midst of sin. Always in the midst of sin. I know, I know, I know there are times when you do not like the way I preach. And the way I preach is to constantly bring before your noses and mine the stink of our sin. And that's not fun. It's not fun for me. I don't wake up in the mornings and think, well, what a fun morning I have planned. I would like everyone to smell themselves this morning, to just get a good whiff and realize they all stink. That's not fun. Not fun for me. Not fun for you. But you need to know that when you're crying to God to be merciful today, 
today, yesterday, tomorrow, it's not because you are clean. It is because God is righteous and merciful and just to forgive you. You have no rights other than what He has promised. Do not walk into the throne room of grace as though you own the place. You don't. You are there as a gift and a promise and a person. Who is that person? Who is that person? That person is Jesus Christ. Now, think about the way God saw us and the way Christ sees us. There is something there to get at. The writer of Hebrews gives us these words to talk about it. This is in Hebrews chapter 2. For it was fitting that He for whom and by whom all things exist. Now again, I started this whole sermon series on the light of the world, that God made the world. That theme, the utter difference between the Creator and the created, is on every page of the Bible. We ought never to move beyond it. It is foundational. It is the first thing. God the Creator. It was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why He is not ashamed to call them brothers. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's what he did. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, that is, the spiritual children of God. Therefore, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Elsewhere in the book of Hebrews, it says that He understands our weaknesses. That one of the things that God did in dwelling with us is he saw us right up close in the reality of the flesh. And he did it because he had to do it in order to save us. And in doing it, he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows our temptations. He understands what it is that is actually happening. His own disciples, night he was betrayed, made Oaths and promises, we will, we will not leave you, even if we have to die, says Peter. And they all left. He knows. The only kinds of prayers you can make are full of sin. They're all full of sin. All of them. Every one of them. Every single prayer you have ever uttered is tainted. 
Do not presume that God ought to be merciful to you, but plead the only thing, the only one, and it's Christ the Lord. We have no other entrance, no other right, no other program, no other way. God sees and He answers. I'm going to read a few passages here. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And God saw the people of Israel and he knew. Prayer will be filled with sin. God sees and hears the groanings of his people. This year I have committed myself and us to be a praying people. Because one of the things that throughout Scripture, over and over and over and over, is this groaning of God's people. Always. Read the Psalms over and over. Hear me. Don't be deaf to me. Don't, will you turn your face away from me or whatever. My enemies taunt me. Groaning. Groaning prayers. Not, not the kind of prayers that we like, but the prayers that are helpful. That actually get to our hearts and go to God's heart. And He sees and He hears. And the people believed when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and had seen their affliction and they bowed their heads and worshipped. Many times He delivered them. But they were in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, He looked upon their distress when He heard their cry for the sake For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. They were rebellious. They were brought low. He looked upon their destruction because he had covenanted to do it. He will not fail in bringing his promises to fruition. And that is our only that Christ actually and it is a promise for salvation to all those who believe. O Lord, You have searched me and known me, and such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from Your Spirit? O Lord God of heaven, this is the prayer of Nehemiah. The great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, let Your ear be attentive and Your eyes open to hear the prayer of Your servant that I now pray before You day and night for the people of Israel, Your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against You. Restore us, O God. Let Your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will You be angry with Your people's prayers? How many of us have ever asked God not to be angry with our prayer. Has that prayer ever crossed your lips to say, God, don't be angry at my praying? We, we, we have so much presumption in this fluffy God who is never at all someone who might actually be perturbed at us, grieved over our sins, 
aware of what we actually thought while we were praying. He does. He sees it. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You have made us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us. Let your face shine so that we might be saved. For his eyes are on the ways of a man, and he sees all his steps, and there is no gloom or deep darkness where evildoers may hide themselves. For God has no need to consider a man further, that he should go before God in judgment. But he does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous. But with the kings on the throne, he sets them forever, and they are exalted. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him until He pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon His vindication. And then to end this. Just one thing, one sentence. But it exemplifies the totality of the mercy of God. And it is this. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We also in Christ, have found favor in the eyes of the Lord. What an unbelievable truth. The God of heaven and earth and all that is in them, who sees actually what you do, and has made a covenant if, and has sent a man to die, has made it so that not only does he see and covenant and die, He finds favor. We find favor. God will abundantly pardon. He will not somewhat pardon. Abundantly pardon. And more than that, give favor to His people. Who among you who has not left father or mother or brother or sister will not be ten times in this life and in the life to come? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. God not only says, I will not consume you, I will forgive you, I will favor you. This is not some health, wealth, prosperity gospel. This is not claim it and it shall be yours. This is humiliation before the throne of God and looking to Him and saying, God save me! And he says, I will, I have, I'm going to, and not only that, you have my blessing. It's not ours to grab, grasp, or hold on to. It is his to give, and he is freely given to us in Jesus Christ, his only son. This is the light of the world.
that God would see and not consume is the greatest miracle in the history of the world. He could. After he destroyed the world through Noah, afterwards, well, the only way that I won't have to do this again is if I just make a promise that I won't. Because man's heart is continually evil from his youth. You can't save yourselves. You will never be good enough not to get wiped out. The only way to save you is to make a covenant that I will not kill you. And then he goes further and he says, favor. How good is God? How amazing is our Lord? Death does not belong to us. The sa- death and its master Satan will die one day. And we will not. What, what a God. What a merciful God. What a saving God. Let's be reminded of this, this season. That we would not boast in our salvation. But we would be humble. Knowing that it is only, only the faith of God. In keeping His covenant steadfast love towards us that saves us. In the face of Jesus Christ the light of the world. Let's pray this morning and we will sing together our closing hymn because unlike the God of heaven, your pastor is a forgetful man.